We're in Acts chapter 8, and uh, I would draw your uh, attention again to this map. I, I want to, uh, as we get started with this, I want to review a couple of things. I wish, I mean, I have all this on PowerPoint, and it would be so neat if I could use that, but I, I can't in rooms like this. But um, it's going to be sort of silly for me to do this, but I don't know how else to do it. And I, I'll do it in such a way that I hope you all can sort of see it. Again, this only makes sense if you're open to page three of the note packet. <clears throat> the map, it's almost half the page. But this is, uh, this is to illustrate something, and that's the reason I put it there. Now, I want you to go back to, <clears throat> to Acts 1.8. Remember that? When Jesus gives the disciples an assignment. You're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. The first seven chapters of the book of Acts are all focused on Jerusalem, and you should be able to really see that. I mean, you might have to look a little bit, but you should be able to see it. And that is, of course, I mean, that's where Pentecost occurred, that's where Peter's two great sermons occurred, that's where by the time we we leave chapter 6, 10,000 people have been added to the church. And then there's just, they touch a little bit on some of the things in, in Judea. But then I want your eye to go, if you can find Judea, that was the name of the Roman province that had made a province, Roman province in AD 6. Just let your finger or your eye just continue to go north until you see Samaria. You see that? Yeah. Now, that's, that's, as far as Rome was concerned, that's another uh, province. They are not linked together. The other thing I want you to just think about is Samaria is the name of that geographical region in the first century, but Samaria to a Jew of the first century meant something else. It wasn't only a geographically distinct area different from Judea. Who were the Samaritans? You know? Do any of you know? I'm, I'm, I'm not a, you don't necessarily have to know. I'm just wondering, do any of you know? Who were the Samaritans? Well, they were kind of half-breeds. They were, um, I don't know whether it was the Persians or some, or some country had taken the Jews captive and then imported their own people into that territory. Exactly. So they intermingled with the Jews. They became a very detested uh, people by the Jews. That's exactly right. Actually, it had been the uh, Syrian Empire uh, that had conquered it in 722 BC. And everything Jim said is exactly what happened. Syria moved in a number of non-Jews, I guess you could call them Gentiles, into that area, and the Jewish people remained intermarried. And from the perspective of the Jewish people in Judea, for example, they were, and Jim, I think, used that term, they were regarded as half-breeds. They were detested by the Jews. And yet, in terms of what is happening now in the account of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, Philip, um, and if you've read the chapter, looked ahead, you've seen his name. Philip is the, is the one who's going to penetrate Samaria with the gospel. And it's remarkable what happens. It, it really is. But I just mention that because I want you to have, you, you really should have, as you're studying a book like uh, Acts, you should have a little sense of the geography of the, set, of the area that we're talking about. And so, you know, I wanted to do that. And we'll point out a couple of things where, uh, in Samaria where Philip uh, will, will minister. I, I doubt there are, any, were there are any questions about the map or, I mean, about the geography of the region. Samaria is a very mountainous area, as is good part of Judea, actually, too. 
Uh, oh. Not necessarily about the geography of the map, but just it occurred to me, or it was kind of curious to me, that the, that um, the apostles were kind of spread as a result of this persecution. Mm -hmm. And um, then in reading this really great book called Covenant People, um, <laughs> reading about how that is a good book. Yeah, with, with Nazi Germany and yeah. England uh, basically not allowing Jews to come into the country, a lot of Jews went back to Israel right. and kind of sort of led to the formation of the state of Israel. So it's kind of curious to me that, that this kind of persecution or pressure led them to be first and then, you know, 2,000 years later kind of led them to be, to go back. Yeah. It has a reverse, uh, yeah. a reverse... A pattern to it. Yeah, you're right. That's exactly, exactly what happens. As the European nations in the 19th century and very early 20th century shut their doors for a lot of reasons that's going on, uh, that's the beginning of what today, if you go to Jewish, uh, go to Israel and you talk about those Jewish migrations, they call them the pioneers. That's the term they used to refer to the Jewish people who for all the different reasons, whether it was the pogroms in, in Russia or uh, England shutting its doors and others, they then go to the Promised Land. They go back to the Promised Land. And that was an incredibly difficult time for them, but that's another story, but you're right. You know, one of the, one of the things you can see, both in, in the Bible, but also in, in just history, uh, it is amazing how God in his sovereignty uses persecution of his people. It's counterintuitive. I mean, persecution is horrible, no matter what you're talking about. But in God's sovereignty, he, he uses persecution to accomplish a larger end. So persecution in the book of Acts leads to the spread of the gospel. As more people are persecuted and spread out, they're going to places that they may not normally have gone, and they're telling people about Christ. And that's exactly what happens here at Samaria. Jim did, um, when Jesus went to the well, and there was a lady there, of what origin was she? She was a Samaritan. Yeah, that's in chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. And she, um, she I'm not sure it's on this map. Yes, it is. They are, uh, you have to, if you have found the term Samaria, let your eye go just a little bit south. You see Sebasta, and then you'll see Sychar, S-Y-C-H-A-R. That is, that is a Greek name of that city that's right at Jacob's well. That's where that lady and Jesus met at the well outside of Sychar. Yeah. And she was very much aware of that culture, too, right? That, oh, yeah. That and this had nothing to do with. That's right. The Jews, that's why it was so remarkable. Again, we're outside of Acts 8, but in John 4... If you were a Jew, and just you can see the geography of this, and say you're a Jew here in Jerusalem, and you're from Galilee, which is north, Galilee's up north, normally what you would do is you'd go up the King's Highway, which is right along the mountains of, jo of Jordan, uh, what today would be Jordan. That's, it's called the King's Highway. That's how you would go back to Galilee, because you would never go through Samaria because of who those people were. But when Jesus made the decision, he took his disciples with him. When Jesus said, oh, no, we're going to go through Samaria, they were shocked. What do you want to do that for? And he just said, we're going through Samaria. And as you know, they're, they're at McDonald's getting lunch, and Jesus is sitting at the well and meets this woman. 
And when you go back to John 4, I'm telling you again more, but it's such a neat story. When you go back to John chapter 4, she becomes convinced that Jesus is the prophet, the Messiah, and she accepts him and she goes into her town until she brings all of the town leaders out. They all trust Christ and they go back in and that city, town, village more accurately, uh, is on fire with the gospel. It's, it's an incredible story of, of God's truth penetrating an area that was unheard of for a Jewish person to go to at that time. So um, anyway, that's just, uh, I wanted to accentuate some of the geography of this, and, and Joel, your comment was really relevant really right on. Okay? Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And you, you may have mentioned this last week, but remember there, in the original text, there were no chapter breaks. Verse, I mean, that was added for purposes of study much later. But the very first verse of Acts 8 is, and Saul approved of his execution. Whose execution? Stephen's, which is what was recorded in chapter 7. And we had learned, if you again go back, you, know, you remember that Saul was standing holding the cloaks of the people who were stoning Stephen to death. This is what is, is called in literature a little walk-on. Because now Luke isn't going to tell us anything about Saul now for another chapter. But it's just reminding us that Saul is approving of the persecution. And presumably what is going on in verse 1 and 2, he is leading that. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered and, you know, that's what, what Joel was talking about in the comment I made. That is a remarkable pattern that as, as persecution occurs, God uses that to accomplish the spread of his word, of the gospel. Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, meaning the apostles stayed in Jerusalem which is, was a courageous thing to do, but they do nonetheless. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation. Uh, lamentation is how the ESV translates that word, but it's a period of mourning. And because these are Jews, I would assume they're still practicing that. The typical mourning period was 30 to 70 days. And that's really what that means, great lamentation. I mean, this isn't they mourn him one day. It's, it's an extended period of mourning which was very typical at that time. Verse 3 is very powerful. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 3 is making something clear. Saul has now moved, in terms of what Luke's doing, from just a standby observer to now leading the persecution in Jerusalem. And what's he doing? He's trying to destroy the church. Now remember, Saul, we... We'll read more about that later on when he um, defends himself before some rulers later on in the book of Acts. But he was brilliant. He was a brilliant man, trained in the best Greco-Roman schools up in Tarsus and trained under Gamaliel I, the greatest rabbi of the first century and all that. He was a Pharisee. I mean, everybody looked up to him. He was, here's the newest guy on the rise in Judaism. And he says to us, he'll tell us when he's defending himself in Acts 23 before Felix the governor, he'll say, I persecuted the church with a good conscience. What did he mean by that? He believed he was doing the right thing. He believed he was doing what God wanted him to do. 
because he is a devout Jew. He will say in his account of himself in Philippians, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee of the Pharisees. In terms of the law, I was meticulous in bringing my life in conformity with the law. He was everything a Jew was supposed to be. And so it's out of that that he leads the persecution. What happens to him? He meets Jesus face to face. And that'll occur in chapter 9. And that tells us again that, well, I'm not sure you should say this, but I'll say it this way anyway. The only thing that changed Paul's life was a direct intervention by God in his life. It took a direct intervention, and that's what Acts 9 we'll read about in a little bit, probably next week or so. So, I mean, I guess there's a little walk on by Luke. Now, he's done with Saul for a while. We'll come back to Saul a little bit later on. Uh, yeah? Prisons where they're putting these Christians in. Is really Jewish church have prisons, or are they putting in Roman prisons? Uh, they would more than likely be put in uh, Roman prisons. Uh, the, 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 um, the arrangement that the, the Jewish leadership had with the Roman Empire where it was twofold. Number one, Rome provided the soldiers for the temple police, which you know, just kind of maintain order on Temple Mount. And the second thing they did is they provided the, the jails, the prisons, if you will, for um, things that the Jewish leadership would arrest people for, which was usually disorder on Temple Mount or creating a riot or something like this. But uh, this, in this case, uh, this is a very serious issue. And, you know, they're, they're putting these people in prison for a period of time for them to be put on trial, not for sedition, but for breaking Jewish law, because they are Jews, remember, in Jerusalem. And so Rome, Rome uh, and these prisons are significant. And, uh, you, uh, if I could take you to Israel right now, uh, the northwest corner of Temple Mount was the Antonian Fortress, which was a massive four towers, a massive building, and the whole basement of that building was a prison. And today, you—I mean, that's all—that's you know, all gone. But today, you enter at say uh, uh, called Echo Homo Church. You enter Echo Homo is Latin for "Behold the Man," because it's in that that tower is where Pilate put Jesus on trial. That's why it's called that. And you enter that church, and you go down to the basement of the church, and you're in the basement of the prison. You're, you're where that mass, that's where Jesus, no doubt, was kept uh, during the trial and uh, where Paul is putting all these people. I mean, you could, you could put several hundred people in that prison. I'd be crowded, but you could do that. So does that answer your question? I mean, Rome, this is part of that arrangement they had. Go ahead. Is it significant that they said men and women? It is significant. That's, that's, that's what Luke does. Luke is the only writer in the New Testament who goes out of his way to stress that women are also involved in leadership and in persecution. And in those converting to Christianity, he will often mention men and women. And in the, in the Jewish society, how common was it to imprison women? Uh, well, I don't know how common it was. That's, I don't know if I can answer that. Children, yeah, I mean, it's... It, because it's such a patriarchal society, and every civilization in the ancient world was very patriarchal, but um, it, the emphasis is always on the men. And so there will always be a far greater number of men. 
But Luke is stressing that Paul is, or Saul at this point, is also centering on arresting women. Why? Because Luke has told us a lot of the key people in the early church are women. And that, you know, in Luke 8, the, the key financial supporters of, of Jesus' public ministry were women. They're all named there. Um, so, I mean, that's probably why Luke is explaining to us that Saul is also arresting a lot of these key women because they were key people in the early church. And I don't mean necessarily they, they have offices in the church. I mean, this is so early. This is only a year or less after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection ascension back to the Father. But, I mean, it's just, that's, and that's a really good question because Luke does explain to us more than any other writer of the New Testament, the role that women are playing in these early months and early development of the church. Jim, did uh, Saul uh, have men and women put to death? Well, he, he says here they're put in prison, but there were, there were a number that were executed. Luke does not address that, but extra-biblical material we have does indicate that a lot of the early martyrs of the church were women. You know. I mean, the majority were men, but there were some women that were, were martyred. And some are very distinctive. They're very really well known. I mean, uh, you've got to get a little beyond where we are in time. We're so close to Jesus' death and burial and all that. But as you move on, uh, there are going to be a larger and growing number of women, particularly as Rome starts to more actively persecute the church. Rome isn't persecuting the church here. Rome doesn't particularly care because it's not an issue yet. It's soon going to be an issue. But it's the Jewish leadership that's doing this. But women are going to, they're going to, a lot of heroines, the early martyrs, some of the early martyrs of the church are women. And some of them are very, very famous. I mean, their, their names are very famous and later will be declared saints and all that. Well, they were, when they typically put people to death there, was it stoning? Is that what they did, Stephen? Well, if... If in this case that's what's happening, if if the Jewish Sanhedrin is arresting someone, now, there, there, there's a bunny trail here. I should probably just quickly go down. In AD six, when Rome took over Judea and made it a Roman province, it was not a Roman province up to that point. It was ruled by one of Herod the Great's sons, but he was an incompetent ruler. His name was Archelaus, and Rome kicked him out and made Judea, because that's where Jerusalem is located, a Roman province directly ruled by the Roman Senate. And so when they did that, they took away the right of the Sanhedrin to execute people. And so the only exception, and Rome, you know, Rome really instituted in Western civilization rule of law. And laws were important. They codified all the laws. And in that codification of that order, they said the Sanhedrin does have the right to execute people in their way for certain religious violations. And in their way meant by stoning. The, the method of Jewish execution, which was not widespread and not very numerous, it really wasn't. But when they did that, it was by stoning. Rome's method of execution, if you're not a Roman citizen, it was crucifixion. If you are a Roman citizen, it's decapitation. That's how Rome executed people. 
Okay, now there were five questions. They're all great questions. Would I be able to move on to verse 4? Okay. Now, when they scattered, were scattered, they went abroad preaching the word. And that fits with what Joel said in his initial question comment. As the persecution ensues, that's the spreading of the gospel. That's how God uses it. And so verse 5, we're introduced to Philip. Now, Philip is one of those seven men chosen earlier in Acts 7. Do you remember them? The seven men that were chosen. Because the, the, the apostles said, our job is to preach the word and pray. We cannot be involved in serving tables and meeting the social needs of the church. It's not that that's important. We can't do that. It, we talked about that. Chapter 6 is such a great chapter in leadership. But the, Philip was one of those seven guys chosen, along with, with Stephen. So, so this is the Philip from Acts chapter 6, one of the seven Hellenistic Jews that, can, that became a leader. So what does he do? He went down to the city of Samaria. And you look on your map, you can see the province name in Cap, Samaria. And a little bit to the south of that is the city of Samaria, which actually was the capital of that, of that province. Why does it say he went down? Yeah, I mean, remember, always remember that. Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. It's very high in the Judean mountains. So anywhere you're going to go, because <laughs> you're in one of the highest peaks in the Judean hills, you're going you're to go down, and that's all that means. So it's down into a little bit of a deeper... It's right, as a matter of fact, it's right at the base of another mountain chain, which is the Samaritan Mountains, or the mountains of Samaria, which extend up to the Valley of Jezreel. Well, anyway, I'm telling you more than you need to know. He went down and proclaimed to them the Christ. What does that mean? Proclaimed to them the Christ. What does that mean? The yeah, well, the Messiah. Remember, Christ is the Hebrew word, or the Greek word for Messiah. So proclaiming the Messiah. He's proclaiming the Messiah to the Samaritans. Now, you, this is one of those things you can gloss over really quickly. <laughs> Don't gloss over it very quickly. I'm not going to let you do that. Because the Samaritans, the Samaritans are half Jews, and so they worshipped God, Yahweh, on Mount Gerizim. That was their, that's where their temple was. Their temple. And they believed in the coming of Messiah. Because they're reading the Old Testament, they read the Pentateuch and much of the parts of the Old Testament text, and so they're expecting the Messiah too. And that's why that woman at the well that Fred mentioned a while ago in John 4, she is all excited about this because she says, I perceive you're a prophet. And, and it goes on and he goes on and talks about Jesus, that religiosity and religion isn't about place. Whether you worship me in the Erezim or Jerusalem doesn't matter. It's your relationship with me. Are you our Messiah? And so when it says he's preaching to them the Christ, he is preaching to them the Messiah that they also expected. And so he would obviously be presenting from the Old Testament text the correct understanding of Messiah, where he would come from, and so on. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. There's that phrase against signs and miracles, healings, we're not sure all that would involve. Even it tells us in verse 7, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. 
What's the result? In Samaria, the capital city of the province of Samaria, there's much joy in that city. Now remember, these are Samaritans, not Jews. So they're responding to the message. They're responding to the same message. But they're processing it through the grid of being Samaritans. But they're nonetheless embracing it. So, I mean, it's, it, it, I mean you read a couple of sentences like that, you read it quickly, you say, oh, wow, yeah, good. I mean, this is incredible. I mean, this is an incredible thing going on in Samaria. So how did they see that differently than the Jews? Who became Christians? How did they Well, see, that's one of the really important issues that comes up as we go through this chapter. How are all the other converts going to look at these Samaritans? And you're going to see the Jerusalem church is going to send Peter and John up to Samaria to investigate what's going on. And the result is they're all going to receive the Spirit and they're all going to speak in tongues. Why? Well, and, and, and there's a, that's true, but there's another reason. That's exactly the same pattern of Acts 2. Why would Peter and John follow exactly the same pattern as in Acts 2? So there's no difference. Ethnic, racial, religious backgrounds don't matter. At the cross, everybody's equal. So what happens in what what happened in Jerusalem, excuse me, is replicated in Samaria. So that you are to regard the Samaritans spiritually as equal to the Jews in Jerusalem. See, that's remarkable. That's remarkable. But that's what Peter and John will do to ensure. Look, what you could not have, and you're going to see the same thing, you're going to see it in Acts 10, you're going to see it in Acts 19, as the gospel spreads, the same kind of thing is happening to make it level, to make it equal. In Christ, everyone is equal. And I'm not talking about financial equality or so. That's not what I'm talking about. At the cross, spiritually, everybody's equal. Everybody comes to Christ in the same way. You come to Christ with the faith of a little child, and you accept what he's done for you on the cross by faith, etc. doesn't matter who you are, what you are, what your background, what your ethnic background, any of that. And so that is a challenge in these early chapters. How are the leaders of the church going to maintain equality of spiritual nature? In other words, spiritual quality. And everybody's going to experience it the same way. Everybody's going to receive it the same way. And that is, that is I think, obviously the Holy Spirit is directing all that. But it's quite profound how these men are seeing this. We cannot have a super spiritual group of people in Jerusalem and then everybody else. There's equality. Genesis, uh, Galatians 3.28. In Christ, there's neither Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. It doesn't matter. You're equal at the cross. And that's the point. But that's why this is a, this is a neat, a really neat thing that, that Luke summarizes for us in verses 4 through 8. It's really, it's really quite profound, really. Okay? Are you all with me? All right. So, so that's why we go to other countries and continents and, and they hear through the Holy Spirit, what God is sharing with them through That's right. these people who witness and testify of Christ and who he is. That's right. And 
we then are to look at them and they are to look at us as spiritual equals. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, you'll see it in the New Testament, but you see it today. Calling one another brother and sister in Christ is, is just a wonderful reminder that we're all level at the cross. We're all the same at the cross. That doesn't mean all those other differences aren't important. They are, but it's, and spiritually, as far as God is, God is concerned, we're equal. That's why, I mean, that was one of the neat things in my life. I mean, I've you know, traveled over the world over the years of my life, and no matter where you are, whether you're in Latin America or Asia or the Middle East or Europe, and you, you meet a, a person who's a Christian and you start sharing your faith, and all of a sudden, you just, it's instantaneous. You have so many things in common, and you're talking about all kinds of things that you share in the faith. And then, this has happened to me, I can't tell you how many times. All of a sudden, and they'll know somebody I know. You know, you're in another continent, and they know somebody I know. And it's just, it's amazing because that the family of God, you know, the church is an organism, uh, as you know. And you really see that, so that you can, no matter who you are, where you are, in Christ, you can call each other brother and sister. Because at that, you are equal in Christ at that level. It's a wonderful, great truth. Verse 9. What's the first word of verse 9? But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic. The Greek word there is magnon, because magic comes from magnon in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Now, that's a little awkward, that, that statement, when you bring it into English from the Greek. But in effect... The people of Samaria are saying of Simon, he is like God. He has the power of God. What this paragraph is setting up is the contrast between satanic power and God's power. Simon is at this point, his reputation, or what Luke is doing in these verses we just read, Luke is summarizing who this man is. He had been doing these things for a number of years. He was the most well-known man in Samaria. He did all these fantastic things. And his magic, this magnon that he practiced, is what gained him the reputation such that people, oh, his power is so, he's like a megalay. Megalay is the word that's translated great there. He's like a god. Verse 11. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Again, for a long time. He's well known. What's the first word of verse 12? But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Notice what Luke does, both men and women. So now, Simon 
has met his match, who's it? Who's the match? Philip. It's almost like, I don't want to make too much of this, but it's almost like Samaria and the people who live in Samaria. Which one's got the real power? They're both doing fantastic things. Well, but really, I like the analogy of magic being the kind of power because any magician you talk to, it's like a hand, it's the same. Yeah. Right? So when you look at it, and it's empty, it's not real. It's not really happening. But it's your perception of the magic. Yeah, yeah. You're giving a 21st century definition of magic. There is, I mean, and that's true. Magic, magicians, the showmen, it is sleight of hand. It's, it's, it's very deceptive. And they take advantage of what the eye sees and the mind and all that kind of stuff very effectively. But this is, this is deeper than just sleight of hand. He's doing things that get people's attention. Exactly, exactly. So it really is being set up as Simon versus Philip, but really satanic energized power versus God energized power. Which which one's the real which one deserves to be called Megalay? Great. Yes. Was, yeah. was Simon a Samaritan? He, he would be a Samaritan. He would be a Samaritan. So Philip was an outsider that came in. Yeah, I mean, he's a Hellenistic Jew, as we read in chapter 6. So, he, yeah, he's coming in. I mean, this is, I mean, you're catching again, the dynamics of this are complicated. Because these are Samaritans listening to a Hellenistic Jew proclaiming Jesus as the Christ and all of that, as well as performing Messianic miracles. Because remember, we've talked about that. That's what these early, they're performing the same miracles Jesus did to draw attention to the fact that Messiah has come. And that's what Philip was doing so effectively. I am not sure about that. I'm thinking that could have been water baptism because coming up in the rest of the chapter, when Peter and John came up, they do baptize them in the Holy Spirit. I think this is water baptism, meaning they're publicly identifying with Christ now. They're drawing the line in the sand in their life that they are, are lining up with Christ. Look at verse 13 now. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Yeah, because he couldn't, he couldn't heal anybody. He couldn't do some of the things that Philip was doing. So he's if he, that that word there. He continued with Philip. That that doesn't do justice. It means he's hanging closely to Philip. So this raises the question: Is his belief sincere? That raises the question. When I was in graduate school, I had a, one of my research assignments for the class I had was defend the proposition that Simon the magician was a true believer. I won't tell you how I answered that question. Yet. Yeah, it's set up. So, okay, so how's Simon responding? He says, okay, I believe this. Okay, I'll identify with it. I'll be baptized. I'm going to hang with you, Phil, real tight. I want, I'm just amazed at what you're able to do. Verse 14. Now, the, the narrative is continuing, but something else is interjected into this. 
Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Now, don't misunderstand this. This isn't, we've got to find out what's going on. No, it's just to investigate and to affirm Philip's ministry. Now, listen. And to establish the unity of the church. That's what they're after. We don't want a church in Jerusalem, which is some super church, and then Samaria, you're kind of substandard church because you're Samaritans. That is not what the Lord wants. That's not what Peter and John want. So what did they do? Verse 15, they came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, again, as, as I said, as you read through those verses that I just read, you say, okay, but don't, don't miss the significance of what they're doing. The apostolic leaders of the Jerusalem church are doing exactly the same thing in Samaria. Pray, receive the Holy Spirit, laying on of hands, and then when it says in verse 18, when and Simon saw that the Spirit was given, what did he see? More than likely, they're speaking in tongues. So it's exactly the same thing happening in Samaria as had happened in Jerusalem. Because what Peter and John are doing is affirming what Peter, I'm sorry, affirming what Philip is doing and working as the leaders of the Jerusalem church to establish the unity of the church. We don't have two churches here. I'm talking about churches in the organic body of Christ. We don't have two. It's the same. And they're trying to establish and ensure that. Now look at how Simon responds to this in verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. You see, that should raise a really big question mark about Simon's genuineness here. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's just this it's just, is really an astonishing thing. He's seeing all this demonstration of messianic power and Holy Spirit power and he says, I want to buy that. I'm going to offer you a lot of money for this because I want to do the same thing you're doing. Verse 19, give me this power to offer the money and to command, it's in the imperative mood, to command, give me this power. What does he want? I'm the megalay of this community. I'm the great one of this community. And I want the power you're demonstrating so that I can remain the great one of this community. I want the same power you have. I'll buy it. How much? Here's a check. It's a blank check. Write any amount on it. I want that power. That's not in the Bible. I just made that up. But I mean, that's what he's doing. Look at how he says this. Give me this power so that anyone in whom I land may receive the Holy Spirit. What we don't know is why Peter responds this way. 
Because Peter, it's almost like Peter is given the supernatural ability to look into the heart of Simon and see what is really motivating him. Look at his words. I'm in verse 20. These are the words of Peter. But Peter said, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. I mean, there is no ambiguity in what Paul Peter is saying here, is there? There's no lack of clarity in what he's saying. Peter is dicing this in such a way that he's focusing on his heart, his motives. And he says, your heart is not right before God. You want this for the wrong reasons. You want this for self-aggrandizing, self-elevating reasons. That's not of God. And so he says, for I see that you, I'm in verse 23 there, I see that you are in the gall, but it's a very difficult phrase to translate. That you're in the gall, you know gall is, like poison. What it, what it was in, in your heart, you're being eaten up with bitterness. And you're in a, the bond of iniquity. Iniquity is another strong word for egregious, rebellious sin. Now again, whether Peter just discerned this or God gave him the ability to really understand what's going on, but I mean, even just the words of Simon indicate there's a lack of genuineness here. And so he lays it on the line. Simon said, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. You know what we don't have is the tone of his voice. You know, when, it, when you're just reading words, you can't do that. You can't, unless somebody had an MP3 player and taped it, we don't know the tone of his voice. We don't know the body language. We don't know the demeanor and the countenance of his face. But Peter said, you pray to the Lord. Simon, you do it. You pray to the Lord. What does Simon say? Pray for me. It's almost a dismissive attitude. You pray. I'm not going to. You do it. I'm not going to do it. In other words, Peter, Peter, is, Peter is insisting in verse 20, repent of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord. These are imperatives. You do this. You repent. You pray. When Simon says, will you pray for me? No, no, Simon. You don't understand. Peter said to you, you repent. You pray. So what, again, it, if we knew the tone of his voice, but when I wrote that paper in that class, I keyed in on the, 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 the term, give me this power that he said in verse 19. And then how he responded to Peter's imperatives, his commands. It is almost dismissive. Now, let me add one more thing, then I saw a couple of hands. In the history of the church, Simon, nicknamed Simon the Magician, 
will become one of the key founders of Gnosticism. If you look in Robert Grant's monumental book on the history of Gnosticism, he brings this up. Tradition says that Simon the Magician becomes one of the key founders of Gnosticism. Now that's extra biblical. I mean, and that's you know beyond the scriptures. But what we have here in, in summary then is someone who has been engaged in occult power for presumably years, challenged by Philip, who's manifesting and demonstrating messianic power, and he wants to buy that for his own self-elevating reasons. So my conclusion when I did that paper is the evidence seems to indicate that Simon was not a genuine believer. Glenn, you were first. I guess the, the very end there, when he says, pray for me, he's not saying pray for my salvation. He's saying, hey, pray for me that uh, you don't take this stuff from me. You know that I don't lose my power. Now, what you said will not happen to me. Yeah. It's very tactical. It's very meaningful. Yeah. That's why... Well, I, I mean, I, I agree with you totally. That's why I, if, if we only had a recording of this and could hear the tone of his voice, see his body language, because you know in communication, 7% of what we communicate is through words. The other 93% is, you know, tone of voice, demeanor of your face, body language, that's communicating meaning. Well, anyway, so, I mean, it's intriguing because this, this, the way it's set up in the text is, it's Philip versus Simon. Fred. I may be stretching it, but in, in, in Peter saying this to Simon, he's saying that the apostolic powers, you're looking by Christ to the twelve, right. cannot go beyond that, so then when, when, when the awful apostles could die, could die, there was no more succession of power uh, right. beyond that group of twelve. Right. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that you can draw and discern that from a larger study of the book of Acts. The, the, the 12 apostles are doing messianic miracles to validate exactly what Jesus was doing. The messianic era has begun. But you get beyond that, they're not doing that anymore. You get into the second century, that stuff's not occurring anymore. But the disciples can still spread it. Yes. Yes, that's right. That's right. Jim, on, uh, on 13, it says that uh, Simon himself believed. Um, but even, even the devil believed. So oh, that yeah. word doesn't necessarily mean. Well, that's what I mean. It's, it's believe. What it, it, you know, when you say, I have faith or I believe, an important question is, what's the content of what you're believing? I mean, you're correct. James says this in chapter 2 of his epistle. There is not one demon in the universe who's an atheist. Yeah, you know what I mean? Demons aren't atheists. Satan is not an atheist. So you could, and this is the point James is making, to say, I believe in God. Well, the demons believe that. Satan believes in God. So, I mean, it's the content of, 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 of that belief. What is he believing? Does he believe there's supernatural power going on? And I mean, that's the point. You're right. 
And I, I, I would I would agree. I reached the conclusion that Simon was not a genuine believer. That was the conclusion I reached. Yeah, in 22, he doesn't do anything that Philip asked him. He does not. He does not. Yeah, he, you pray for me. That the calamity you said is going to happen, that doesn't happen to me. That's, there are things missing there. <laughs> now he's responding. And so, uh, and again, as I mentioned, that, that doesn't necessarily prove anything particularly, but the tradition is that Simon goes on to be one of the early founders of the Gnostic movement, which is an interesting extra-biblical thought. All right? Look at verse 25. Here's another one of Luke's little summaries. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. That's Acts 1.8 being fulfilled. They're, they're just peppering Samaria with the gospel now. It also looks like they're going to be able to preach to other villages of the Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And he doesn't name them, but villages and towns and so on. They're not just walking south. Every time they hit a village or a community, they, they speak about Christ to that village. So it's, it's really neat. And that would be Peter, John, and Philip. Now the next paragraph, oh, it's one of my favorite in the whole book of Acts. Uh, nine minutes. Um, we won't finish this, but that's all right. So now the focus is still on Philip. But another, oh, it's almost astonishing what happens here. And an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, again, I mean, I would encourage you to just, if you have that map in, to find Jerusalem which, you know, it's pretty easy to find. And just let your eye or your finger go kind of southwest, and you see Gaza. Now, Gaza is a, 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 a place name you're familiar with today. You heard the Gaza Strip a lot on the news. That's, that's the same area. That whole strip of the Gaza Strip is where the Philistines lived back in the Old Testament. So the people there in that area are all descendants of the Philistines. Now, the reason Gaza is mentioned is Gaza was the last water hole, the last place you could get water, before you continued on this desert road, the desert road that goes down into Egypt. So, I mean, that's where he's to go. I want you to go down near Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Candace is more probably of a title than a proper name. But all I want you to see here as we get started with this, we won't get it all finished, I don't think. But the Holy Spirit has an assignment for Philip. I want you to talk to one of the most powerful men in the Ethiopian Empire. Now, from Jerusalem to the capital of the Ethiopian Empire, which is far south of Egypt, is a 1,500-mile trip. Why is this Ethiopian, who is in charge of the treasury of the Queen of Ethiopia, why is he traveling from Jerusalem to Gaza and headed south? Why is he doing that? Next verse. He had come to Jerusalem 
to worship. He is a convert to Judaism. He's what is called in the book of Acts a proselyte. He's a Gentile who had converted to Judaism. So he had been up in Jerusalem worshiping. What does that mean? Don't know exactly. More than likely, he's offered some sacrifices in the temple. He's prayed there at the temple. And whatever else he wanted to do. So now he's heading back home. And he's following the natural road that would take him home. And it's a, as I said, it's a whole 1,500-mile journey. So he's a very powerful man, a very wealthy man, a very significant man who has converted to Judaism. And the next verse says, he was returning, seated in his chariot. Now, when you read the word chariot, don't think of Ben-Hur. You know, there's little tiny, this is a larger chariot. Three people could fit in. It had shades, it had like, um, what shade, curtains. Curtains they put around, it had a roof on it. So, I mean, this is, this is you know, this is what a wealthy person would travel in. It's like the difference between a Ben-Hur chariot, which is a Ford, and his chariot, which is a royal blue 911 Porsche. Well, three three of you laughed. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's that was that. You're right. That was a terrible. That was a terrible example. A Rolls Royce, okay, a big big Rolls Royce, okay. Yeah, I know, but it's, that, that's. I have a royal blue 911 Porsche. It's this big, and it's in a glass. My kids got it for me a couple of years ago. But anyway, that's beside the point. But he's in the chat reading the prophet Isaiah. He's a Gentile, Ethiopian, powerful man, up to the temple to worship, probably offered sacrifice or whatever, and he's headed back home. He's reading Isaiah. Probably the most important of the Old Testament prophets. Verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. He's reading it out loud. And he asks him this piercing question Do you understand what you're reading? Now we have to assume that he's reading it in Hebrew. He could have been reading it in Greek, the Septuagint. Have you ever heard of the Septuagint? That's the, the, the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek. So I mean, we don't know. He, he could have had the ability to read either one. But he's reading it, and so Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture he was reading was this, and then now Luke quotes it for us. He's reading from Isaiah 53. Verse 7 and 8, part of 7, part of 8. Now, I don't know, you probably don't know a lot about the structure of Isaiah, but from chapter 40 through chapter 66 of Isaiah are five major servant songs. And this one, Isaiah 53, is the second major, it's one of the most important, because it speaks of the servant of God, the Messiah, dying a substitutionary death for his people. God pouring out his wrath on that servant. And so the Ethiopian eunuch is reading this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shears silent. So he opens not his mouth. 
In his humiliation, justice was denied him. It was an unjust execution. Who can describe this generation? For the life is taken away from the earth. He dies. And the eunuch shooks at Philip and says, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say these things? Is it about himself? Or is it about someone else? Man! I wish I would get into a situation where some person who doesn't know Jesus Christ is reading the Bible and he's reading about Jesus hanging on the cross and dying and said, what's going on here? Explain it to me. Man, this is the best setup for the presentation of the gospel any individual ever had. Now, I'm being a little animated, but it's unbelievable. I mean, all you have to do is start explaining what Jesus did fulfills this. So Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So this proselyte, this Gentile, powerful, wealthy, significant man, 1,350 miles from home, hears the truth about the Messiah. In verse 36, as they're going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, now remember, this is like an oasis, one of the great final watering holes before you head down to the desert in Egypt, before you get to the Nile. And he says, what prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. They went both down to the water, Philip the eunuch, and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And they came out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. So you have, again, this, this significance of, of baptism that tied in a lot of these important early uh, aspects of the book of Acts. He believes that what Luke is saying, is, uh, what Philip is saying is true, that this is Jesus. He believes in him, and he wants to be baptized. So he's identifying with Christ. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just an amazing story. But it, you see, again, the superintending providence of God. God is reaching this powerful man from Ethiopia because he's converted to Judaism and he's reading Old Testament texts that clearly point to Jesus. And he says, I can't understand this. And so God sends him fault. From this, I want to float a proposition that's clear throughout the Bible. If a person who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ responds to the light of God's revelation, God sends more revelation for them to respond to. You understand what I mean? As a person begins to respond to God's revelation, whether it's in creation, conscience, the law, moral law of God, or Jesus, God continues to send them more. This man is responding to the light of God's word in the Old Testament. And Philip completes it. And he responds. You and I are going to see this guy, this Ethiopian eunuch in heaven. He's an incredibly important convert. But again, what you see here, the leveling, the equality, what happened to the eunuch is the same thing that happened to the Jewish people in Jerusalem, the same thing that happened to the Samaritans in Samaria. Here's an Ethiopian. He would be a black man. He would be, you know, I, there's a lot of tradition that goes with this. Then. I mean, Ethiopia is supposed to be, and it's way south of Egypt in the ancient world. And Ethiopia, 
there's there's a whole heritage there. Do any of you remember the name Haile Selassie? He was the last emperor, and you know Mussolini conquered Abyssinia and threw him out, and all this, a lot of tragic stuff there. But he ends that. But one of the titles of Haile Selassie was he was the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. See, the Ethiopians have made a strong connection to the Jews, and there is a large group of Ethiopians here today that claim to be Jews. They're practicing Jews. And the state of Israel has flown 70,000 of them into Israel. They're citizens of Israel because they have the heritage that goes along with Judaism. It's an, it's an, and it's all because of this. It's an amazing story. Ethiopia is a very sad, very poor country today, but it hasn't always been. It's been a very significant country in history. In much of the Old Testament, Ethiopia is usually called Cush, C-U-S-H. Uh, no, wait, I've got three people asking me a question here. Uh, today? Yes, yes. Exactly, exactly. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so neat how this fits into what's, uh, oh, good night, i got to quit. What's going on here? I wanted to, do, well, I'll just start there. I want to do one more thing with Philip and uh, Matt be with us next week. We did a lot today. Are you with me on all this? It's a great chapter. I love chapter 8. It's a lot of neat stuff. All right, I'm going to pray and we'll get out of here. I'm sorry I kept you a little late here. Lord, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for its veracity and truthfulness. We can trust it. We can depend upon it. Thank you for these men that are willing to take an hour out of their busy Wednesdays and just study the word of God. Thank you for the blessing of this chapter together. And we thank you for the promise that Jesus made that he'll always be with us, he'll never forsake us, he'll never leave us. And that presence of Christ and through his Holy Spirit who indwells us, we have the power, the enablement, the energy, the determination to serve you, to represent you, and to do the work you want us to do, regardless of what that is. Thank you that there's equality in Christ. There are no distinctions when it comes to the cross. Everybody comes to Christ in the same way. And there's a leveling in that area particularly. And we are able to call one another brothers and sisters in Christ because we're in the family of God. Thank you for these truths. Dismiss us with your blessing. May we represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.